Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Mercedes-Benz, for the intro to our guest today, Amir Nitu. Amir is the founder of OutSchool. OutSchool is an education marketplace platform that offers a variety of engaging small group classes online that gives kids the unique opportunity to explore their interests in depth. They were also one of the fastest growing tech companies during COVID. It was really great chatting with Amir as we explored topics that we really haven't covered much on this show, like the effects of COVID has had on traditional education and also where OutSchool has really become a complementary part of kids' lives. We talk about impact, legacy, and Amir's unique distribution model when he first founded the company. Without further ado, here's Amir. Amir, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Mike, it's great to be here. I'm doing very well indeed under the circumstances. <laughs> um, I haven't been vaccinated yet, so I've been in front of my computer at home for a very long time now, but you know, generally doing great. Looking forward to getting you vaccinated. At the same time, <laughs> very, very happy that you're in such positive spirits and you're doing great. I know this was a, a huge week for you. So congratulations again on the fundraise. I would love to start from the very beginning. What was your attraction to technology and also entrepreneurship? You know, I think I was so influenced by my parents, uh, as well as having an innate you know, attraction to technology. My, both my parents were physicists. So they love tinkering around with things and talking about new ideas. And then, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to get my first computer when I was age five, an old BBC Micro. And I just fell in love with tinkering with computers, with playing with them. So I, I feel like, you know, I've always been attracted to technology. And then, you know, I studied engineering and it was very natural to me to go into software and to go into tech in the early 2000s. So, you know, I guess that's what attracted me to it. My father was also a businessman and he ran his own small business. He ran it as a family business and all my uncles were also, you know, businessmen. So I, I had that introduction to entrepreneurship and talking about new ideas and tinkering new technologies very early. What was the opportunity that you saw in education and why you wanted to focus on that space? You know, there was so many influences which converged really to inspire me to um, work in education. You know, first off, both my parents were teachers. You know, my father was a businessman for part of his career, but he went back to um, teaching physics and my mum taught math and physics. So, you know, I've been thinking about education and uh, also applying technology in it for a long time. But, you know, for the majority of my career before 2015, I was you know, in tech, but working on other things. You know, what really drew me back um, to thinking about education was wanting to start a family myself. So I now have a two and a half year old son, but you know, back in 2015, I was you know, just thinking with my wife about starting uh, a family. And, and I was thinking about what I wanted to work on next. And I wanted to work on something that was gonna be, you know, meaningful for my own kids and something that they would use. And it also caused me to reflect on my own childhood. And, you know, I shared this, I got my first computer when I was five, and my parents before me to play games on. 
But, you know, that's actually part of the story as well, not just in terms of that being, you know, how I got into technology, but also the inspiration behind thinking about education. Because, you know, one thing that my parents really did for me is help me pursue that interest outside of normal school. And then when I look back on that, I think about how important that learning experience was for me and the fact that it happened outside of school. And that uh, made me realize, hang on, when thinking about education, there is just you know, so much that is valuable to learn and to, and to explore that is outside the typical school curriculum. And so, uh, you know, just reflecting on, on what I wanted for my own family and, and some of my own experiences really um, excited me to, to work in the field. So once you maybe had these this beginning inklings or idea of what eventually became out school, and you had these deep reflections on what really propelled you, or what maybe was even was maybe more important than school—the actual out of school experience and actually learning outside of school. How did you help validate this idea? I would love to kind of learn just more, like the very beginnings of of when you were thinking about out school. Yeah, you know, I like to, at first, sit with ideas for a while and actually be a little self-indulgent with them and not try and move too fast because, you know, I have ideas all the time. People have ideas all the time. You can be excited about them one way, one day, but what a real test of an idea is if you keep coming back to it and keep kind of building on it. And so for a while, I just sat with that, you know, oh, that's interesting. I would like to you know, do something in education because of where my own life is going. And my, you know, reflecting my own education, this experience was, was so important to me to have an outside of school. And I, honestly, I, I sat with that. I started then looking for signals, <laughs> you know, like what other information is there out in the world that can help guide me to the next step rather than being too active about it. Another set of thoughts on my mind at the time, um, and this was you know, in 2014 and, and early 2015, was how um, dramatically some other industries were being changed by marketplace-based models. So that was an idea, you know, in there. So, hey, you know, marketplaces have all these tremendous characteristics of being able to link supply and demand in more dynamic ways, you know, Lyft and Uber transforming ride-sharing and Airbnb transforming accommodation. And it seems kind of nuts to me that you had to choose a school or choose a curriculum for your kids sometimes years in advance when you could just press a button on a phone and, and get a car. And so actually that was a very early, you know, envisioning about school. Like what if you could just press a button like you do on a lift line and get a group class for your kid? So that idea um, was in the mix. But really the moments that unlocked out school for me as a, as a concept and the strategy behind it was when I discovered secular homeschoolers. So a friend of my wife and I uh, was started homeschooling her kids because the San Francisco school district wanted to send each of her kids to a different school and the logistics were nuts. And she was you know, um, very well educated and confident herself in her ability to help her kids with education. And so she started homeschooling them and I, I learned about it and I realized there's this group of families who are already experimenting with education outside of the normal school system and it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what a lot of people think homeschooling is, which is this religious thing or people trying to isolate their kids. You know, there's, there's definitely elements of that, but there's also this subculture of secular homeschooling where, you know, parents were already experimenting. And I realized, oh, wow, here is a group of people who have already chosen to emphasize out-of-school learning. No one really recognizes that this is a, 
that they're there and in large numbers, but people have this perception of homeschooling, which isn't quite right. And strategy emerged that, hey, what if we could build a product to learn from this group and then take our learnings and use that to transform the education system more widely? And really, that's where the OutSchool was born. And that was the strategy that we adopted and, and has played out. So a lot of the experiences that people were looking for were social. You know, they didn't work homeschooling to keep their kids isolated. They wanted to get together with other families. They were getting to get together with other families. So they wanted things like, you know, field trips or uh, study groups focused on various subjects. And particularly on subjects where maybe the parents themselves would struggle to help their kids, in, you know, personally, or where it might be a little bit more difficult to, to find a teacher. And, you know, these were also families who were very excited, you know, like my parents were, to support their kids in developing their interests. And, you know, the thing about kids' interests is they change all the time and they, they change to areas which you're not necessarily expert in. So, if, you know, if my kid wanted them to, uh, you know, teach them how to, wanted me to teach them how to sing, you know, I'm probably not the best person to help them with that. That's where we saw the opportunity. And, and it, you know, it could be as simple as things like you know, a singing class or a math study group. But then also we found that you know, parents could be inspired to take classes that cross over fields like you know, architecture and Minecraft or helping their kids understand certain professions like going on a, going on a field trip to, to see how a business was run. So it was really varied according to kids' interests, which supported the idea of a marketplace-based model because you know, that's the strength of a marketplace-based model in that you can support tremendous variety. So it was actually that insight that it wasn't like one class or one particular area that it made sense to, to focus on it. The, the whole point of, of this was uh, variety. And we realized that, you know, that's missing innately in, in core education because you know, core education is about a fixed curriculum and a relatively small set of subjects. So, so that's how we kind of got to that you know, initial need and, and figure out where to start. So I understand a bit about how, which market you saw in terms of on the demand side or really trying to help children have these new variety experience. What was your thinking or, or process in terms of finding these teachers? What was kind of like the avenue that, that you had to go through in order to find those individuals? I remember those days very vividly because, you know, it was super scrappy. Just, you know, myself and my co-founders, you know, we had to be super nimble because, you know, we have this chicken and egg problem, right? You can't demand unless you get supply and vice versa. So I remember the very first out-school class was me just looking at my network and saying, hey, who do I know who I think could teach something really compelling? And my friend, Matt Donne, uh, who is you know, an advisor to the company and taught the first class, he at the time was a, a grad student at UCSF studying stem cell biology. So I said, hey, Matt, got this idea. We think it could be great, but we need a class. Could you teach stem cell biology to 12-year-olds? And Matt was like, I could try. I do teach 12-year-olds. He wasn't a certified teacher, but I just thought his research could be taught in a way that was accessible to young kids and could be really interesting. So he put a class together. And then I had, you know, through the initial research I'd done, you know, through kind of, you know, joining these dots between secular homeschoolers, marketplace based models, I got to know some homeschooling parents who ran groups of other parents on Facebook and, and Yahoo email list. And so, you know, Matt put the class together and then I emailed one of these parents uh, who said, hey, can you share this with your group of gifted homeschoolers? Because I think this content will be really great for them. Um, the class sold out. 
like within it. And, um, you know, that was, and this was really before, you know, the website was like a single, like static page with this class, you know, built on a shoestring, you know, there, there was no, there was no product there. We didn't build anything because we were so focused on let's get to value. We should be able to create value here with a really basic prototype. And so it almost before founding, we, you know, had taken our first revenue from that class and had proven the model. And so, you know, then the next step, well, what's class number two going to be? Well, we used the same playbook. We asked, looked around at my network and one of my friends was running a, a business in the dog patch creating iPad cases. And he had this manufacturer class says, hey, well, why don't we do a tour so kids can see your design process? Like, how do you, this is, you know, industrial design, that's cool. So we got a group of teens to come through um, his warehouse and he talked about you know all the different stages of the process and that was the second class and then the third class i think was you know the museum of craft and design we organized a field trip there and then we started saying well okay this is scalable we, we, we we're going to learn manually how to do this how to identify these potential classes why don't we now start uh, and we know how to get the demand we we go to these parent groups we um, encourage them to share the class with people who would be interested in and so, and then at that point, we started dancing back and forth. It's like, okay, well, can we like build out the parent website so they can actually self-serve pay? You know, the first enrollments, they would just like click this button on the website and it, it, we hooked it up via, I think, Zapier to PagerDuty. So I'd receive a page and then I would email them an invoice using Square invoices. And that's how we did payments. Just like, okay, well, can we make, make that, now we've got this going, can we at least make it possible to like, you know, enroll on the site properly and pay on the site. And then once we got that in a bit of a good state, so like, well, hey, on the, on the supply side, instead of us having to like manually put together these class listings and manually find the people, can we make it possible for people to kind of just come to the site and post a class without us needing to talk to them? And it took you know, months and months of going back and forth, back and forth until it became possible for someone to come to the site, sign up as a teacher, um, post a class, without them necessarily having having talked to us. And then similarly for parents, just discover the site. And at that point, we we're a real marketplace. We could start to do some of the more scalable user acquisition um, methodologies that are typical for marketplaces. But that it took a good six months to a year to get to that point. When was the moment or maybe a series of moments when you realize, okay, there's a bit of momentum here, that this is actually could scale, this could be a large business. Was that always the thinking, even in your first inkling, what was like a specific moment where you maybe were just getting inbound from both sides and, and it seemed like the whole cycle was actually working? Yeah, you know, we designed this business to try and have a large impact on education. So we always had the ambition that, hey, whatever we're doing here, it's got to be a model that we believe is a good one that is going to have a positive impact and is one that can scale to be very widely adopted. But then there was a long discovery process and, hey, what is, you know, we have these ideas, what is that model? And, you know, I've talked a bit about that first moment, which is like the first magic moment when you receive dollars for a product and, you know, spark lights up in kids' eyes. It's like, okay, so that's the first moment. But that's this little question mark then of, well, is this, how big could this be? How are you going to scale this thing? You know, that's a question that, to an extent, startups answer all the time because you're always asking, like, how, how can you get to the next level? I would say in the early days, you know, the next step, once we made it possible to self-service was, you know, hey, can we really scale to get a large number of secular homeschoolers on board? And, and how are we going to do that? Um, that required um, a lot of iteration and polish of the product and really launching it. You know, we did this kind of very iterative process, which I described, which wasn't really a product launch. We're kind of like building as 
as we're going along. But then in the summer of 2017, we actually defined the set of uh, final set of features we need to consider this, you know, a V1 product that, that was complete to a certain degree. And, um, and so we launched in the summer of 2017, and then we started adding um, consumer growth channels. So referral programs and paid marketing. And we increased our fee to 30% to make sure that we had really solid unit economics and that we could afford all of the trust and safety and supply vetting um, activities and the marketing that we were doing. You know, at that point, things really took off because we had found these scalable channels that were effective. We had strong unity economics. We were able to reinvest revenue um, into you know, team growth and marketing. And the flywheel on the marketplace really started um, turning. And what we also found was that you know, many of the people who discovered the site as parents were also teachers. So you know, driving the demand on the site was also actually supporting the supply. I think you know, I'd call that you know, initial product market fit in our early adopter audience, which is at that time, and we started growing our numbers very rapidly. And then that resulted in us raising a, a series A in, in 2018. By the time we had a year's worth of this growth data showing this really, really solid growth. How did you think about trust and safety early on? Because I'd imagine that's something that you have to be very, very careful with, especially in terms of how you're vetting on the supply side, making sure that everything is running smoothly. And, and yeah, because you're obviously dealing with children too. Absolutely. You know, it's super important. And from the very beginning, we never envisaged a completely open marketplace. You know, parents want to know that when they go into a class, their kids are going to be, you know, safe, they're going to be respected, you know, the teachers are going to be vetted. And so, you know, from the very start, um, we vetted teachers, we vetted classes, and we have a large team that, that does that. We always vetted the, the marketplace and you know, we also have some structural advantages, you know, one of which is that because all these classes take place online over video chat, we you know, are actually able to record all of the sessions. We can check the quality and review those with the teacher. And you know, secondly, these are group classes. And so you know, there's people around the table in the room who are able to report anything when things go wrong. And so you know, it's not the case that this is you know, an in-person um, unmonitored interaction, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. It's very, very different from that. And so we use those advantages to, to make sure that we ensure uh, trust and safety. It's actually one of the reasons why I think it's so important that, you know, OutSchool exists and that this type of learning happens through a platform like OutSchool. Because if online learning becomes, you know, peer-to-peer -peer based, you know, just like teachers around the world connecting with students one-on-one -on, -one on Skype, say, there's no um, assurance of uh, quality and there's much more potential for, for things to go wrong. And so I see it as a, a key role of what we do as a vetted marketplace is to ensure that safety, ensure this type of learning can scale in a safe way. What was your approach to raising your Series A? Um, I believe that was summer of 2018, is that right? What was your strategy? Did you happen to have investors in mind that you think would be great to uh, to be partners? Or yeah, what was, I guess, your strategy for raising? I went into the process, you know, obviously with some investors in mind um, who I was excited about, but also with an open mind to learn more. So part of the fundraising process isn't, you know, just pitching yourself to investors. Also, I, I found it to be an educational exercise because you get feedback and you learn about them. I think we always took a little bit of a different approach to fundraising in that we always sought to raise less than another company might have done, you know, given our traction. 
And that was part influenced by you know, our own confidence in the business. You know, why raise more now when we can go for less dilution and, and raise more later when we needed it? Also, because you know, we have strong unit economics, we had the benefits of, you know, we didn't need that much capital in order to get to the next milestone. But also because you know, I actually counterintuitively have found that raising smaller amounts more frequently can actually be beneficial because of the learning. The downside, typically, of doing that, the reason why other people don't like doing that is, you know, fundraising is a pain. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work. And it's, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster. And um, it's distraction from, you know, customers and building products. But I found that by being very aggressive with the timescale of the raise and um, insisting on speed above all else in the partners um, that I've chosen to work with, that it works, that... You could raise more frequently. As a result, you get more feedback from the markets. You have more opportunity to learn um, from feedback from investors who passed as well as who um, end up investing. So, you know, I went into, into that with, with kind of that mindset and, you know, that's been influenced by, you know, learnings earlier in my entrepreneurial career. For the Series A, I, I really wanted to bring partners on board who had a real understanding of education because, you know, we were coming into the space with a lot of personal motivation on the founding team, but not necessarily that much of a background in education. You know, my co-founder, Nick, had been a high school teacher earlier in his career before becoming the first engineer at Airbnb. But, you know, the, the, the connection to education was tenuous. We wanted real industry expertise. And then I wanted to bring on, um, you know, a top-tier firm as well who has strong marketplace expertise. So then I really wanted to get to the point where we could have co-leads, you know, one firm bringing the education experience and one firm bringing the marketplace experience. And, um, you know, I was so delighted to be able to achieve that with incredible partners, you know, reach capital. And so they co-led our Series A with Union Square Ventures, which is, you know, top tier, such an amazing firm. And, you know, they had a great day yesterday with Coinbase as well. So, so <laughs> you know, um, Having having someone like like them around the table has, has just been incredible, and you know I'm so grateful to you know Jennifer Carolan um, at Reach Capital and Rebecca Caden at Union Square Ventures who who co-led that. Day. It's interesting hearing your strategy too about raising very frequently, smaller amounts very frequently. I think Andrew Dunham, when I talked to him, who's the founder of Hims and Hers, had I think a similar strategy. He said that every three months he was fundraising. Um, which to me sounded a bit bonkers, uh, but uh, but but maybe you were also in a similar position. I think every three months is a bit too much for me. I, I might do every three year. <laughs> but actually, another benefit which um, I didn't necessarily expect, but you know, you kind of get better at it, you know, because <laughs> you're doing it more frequently and you never get rusty. And so that's a, that's another small side benefit. I guess maybe one of the downsides of of raising maybe small amounts, doing a lot more quantity, is that just in case an investor doesn't maybe follow on and the signal that it might come back to get you. Was that ever a concern of you um, for signaling or not so much? Honestly, though, I have found that my worries and in general founders' worries about signaling are, are kind of overrated as a concern. I think a lot of reasons for firms investing or not investing, you know, there's a lot of randomness there, honestly, and a lot of firm dynamics. And that's a bigger part. And I think, you know, firms are always trying to come up with a contrarian hypotheses or beat each other with a different approach. And so investors often bring it up. Uh, uh, I think it's a, a fear that they might encourage an entrepreneur. <laughs> 
supports uh, it, it often supports their goals, but I, I did not found it to be an issue. I would say though that I wouldn't necessarily recommend our strategy to to other companies. I designed it because it fits some specific hypotheses that we had. Like you know, we believed that marketplaces, you know, once you get them going, you often don't need very much to get them going, but once you get them going, they become very obviously very valuable. Because that's why it made sense to you know, not you know, show that value. And we had a belief that our valuation was going to increase radically later after we, we reached certain tipping points. We also had a belief that we were going to be continually underestimated in the early days because of you know, lack of understanding from many investors about the education market and um, a lack of understanding about you know, secular homeschoolers and that they were, we're going to encounter these objections like, oh, that's a niche market. How could this ever be big? No matter how much you explain your strategy and how credible it is, until you have the proof points, it's really tough. So we're like, we're very confident in our ability to prove out this strategy, and we're only going to raise the, the minimum capital we need at, at any given point. And it's interesting because now it seems like ed tech is such a popular um, hot category for VCs to invest in. Was it like that back in 2018 or not so much? It was getting to be, I guess, hotter as a category because of a, a lot of the success of consumer education companies. So people were just starting to realize, oh, I've been thinking about ed tech and education as this holistic category, but actually selling into the existing institutions is very, very different uh, dynamics of those businesses to um, consumer businesses. And in particular, you know, Union Square Ventures have just incredible success across in, in education, specifically investing in those consumer education companies. So I think people were starting to get that distinction even before the pandemic. But of course, you know, the pandemic has changed so much. And, you know, there's now a very strong belief, which I agree with, that this is, you know, a catalyzing moment for change in education um, more broadly, even beyond the pandemic. So that's why I think like right now there's a, um, so much more interest in, in in education as a cash group. So let's talk about the pandemic and COVID. So March last year, what was going through your mind when the world was shutting down? What were you thinking about when it came to your business um, out school? What was the reaction or things that you needed to do? Maybe it was a slight pivot or adjustments that you needed to do with out school. I know you had tremendous growth last year, but would love to kind of know just your response to COVID. Yeah, you know, I think the first time I remember really kind of thinking, oh, something really dramatic and, and bad is going to happen here or could happen here was when someone shared with me some notice from the CDC when they were starting to talk about COVID in, I think, late February. And there was this, there was this part of it where it was saying schools might need to shut and we might need to move to um, internet-based teleschooling. And I looked at that phrase, internet-based teleschooling. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what they mean is what I would call live online learning. That's what we do. <laughs> and then, you know, I thought about it a bit more. I was like, at that time and, and still today, there's no other organization in the US that's more experienced with this type of learning than we do. And then I realized, oh, <laughs> we need to do something. And, you know, I, I didn't know what it would mean in terms of the metrics. You know, there was such uncertain times. Like, was this, you know, anything to worry about? Maybe it was like this very strange time in late February where people didn't know how to react. Could be this big thing. Or maybe it wasn't. Are we all overreacting here? But I had a sense that, oh, if this really is as bad as the CDC is starting to signal, then, then there's going to be some really, really big challenges. And so what we did was we started offering 
webinars on how to run online classes. Nothing to do with our business. This was just a team and community sharing expertise and inviting schools, administrators, teachers and schools to, to take this training because uh, you know, we realized we had this expertise to offer and we didn't know what, you know what the impact would be on our own business, but we're like, we, we need to share this. This, this is going to be bad. It's going to be big and we should try to help. And you know, thousands and thousands of administrators and teachers signed up for those webinars and we shared what we could. We also, at that time, you know, talked to Zoom. They were preparing as, as well. They had education initiatives and we did some partnering where they pointed people to our, to our webinars. And then as it got into early March and it became, the prospect of shutdowns became more and more real, we decided to kick off um, something that had been on my mind for a long time anyway. Uh, which was a non-profit initiative to in, provide financial assistance to get into out-school classes. Because we realized from the webinars, we realized, okay, we're helping, but this is a drop in the ocean. Like there's no way the entire education system can just, well, schools are just going to move to online. It's going to be smooth. You know, no, it's not going to be smooth. It's going to be a shit show. At that point, we realized, well, number one, we have to be ready to plug in the gaps. Because a lot of people are going to come to us. Um, if they could afford it, uh, full classes to keep their kids occupied and in touch with their, their learning. And then secondly, this is going to be really, really bad for those families who are underserved in their own school districts and don't have the resources to buy extra help for classes like our school. And so um, we collaborated with Zoom. They put in a little money um, out school. The company put a little money and we launched out school that all was as a financial assistance program and announced that um, we were doing this. We happened to make that announcement on the afternoon of Friday, uh, March the 13th, which is seared on my memory because it was on that day where widespread uh, school shutdowns were announced across the country. By 2 a.m. on the Saturday morning, we'd blown through the initial $50,000 commitments to that free classes program. And we didn't know how people were discovering it because you know we'd made as much noise as we could, but it was just a steamroll of demand. We later found out that because of our webinars that we'd offered to teachers and schools, when school shutdowns were announced, many schools gave resource lists to their parents. And because they'd heard about school through those webinars, our school was on that list that parents were being sent home with. And so over that weekend, we just kept upping, you know, we, we had a frantic scramble for let's get more, we need more donations of this fund. Our school, um, the company committed a million dollars and we got um, more donations. We had kept on upping that rate and, and trying to keep up with the demand for the free program. And uh, you know, at the same time, our paid business for families who could afford it was also going through the roof. And we were just you know, hanging on. <laughs> it was not growth like anything I've seen before. And you know, I was at Square in 2013 and 2014 when they grew the company from 400 people to uh, 1,200 people. I was a, a product manager and founded the Square Payroll product there. And my co-founder, Nick, was the first engineer at Airbnb. So, you know, we're familiar with fast growth, but I've never seen anything like this. And it was obviously a very unique event where, you know, our product was so applicable to helping people in with the start, especially the start of the pandemic and then, then continuing throughout. And we had had these initiatives, which, you know, were the right, right things to do at the right time. And that caused this incredible wave of demand. And then, you know, Scrambled to keep the free classes program alive, succeeded in that. Scrambled to keep the website up and performance. And then all our classes were sold out by Monday. <laughs> so we had to scramble to get 
more teachers on boards. And so, you know, we had a thousand teachers with published class on the platform. Now we have 10,000. And yeah, we put out a call saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to try and find 5,000 more teachers within the next two weeks. And thankfully, at this point, we're also you know, receiving a lot of press inquiries. So it was uh, a relatively easy to get the word out. And there was a lot of teachers who were looking for you know, safe ways to, to apply their craft in the pandemic. And so, so we, we kept the wheels on the wagon, <laughs> but only just. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. I mean, what was also the transition like? Because I'd imagine that before the pandemic, you were doing one-off lessons mostly. And I'd, I'd imagine that during the pandemic, it was a bit more ongoing lessons. Since of course you have to keep a lot more kids entertained, they have a lot more time on their hands, um, unfortunately, uh, due to the pandemic. Was that also challenging? Yeah, you know, um, the mix of demand will change pretty rapidly, right? To, from parents looking to fill a few hours of their kids time, suddenly, oh crap, I need to fill a whole week. <laughs> so the intensity of scheduling classes went up dramatically. Before COVID, parents would buy a mix of, you know, they'd dip their toes in the water with one-time classes, and then they might buy a semester-long class that meant, like meets once a week um, for the whole semester. You know, during COVID, parents have been buying like multiple classes per day and just like, and, and also rather than schedule, just scheduling out next semester and being done with it, kind of like scheduling for the next hour <laughs> or, or, you know, the next week is very, very immediate kinds of demand, which has been very different. And yes, you alluded to this, our weekly classes that meet once a week on an ongoing basis have also, you know, really taken off during COVID. After that initial first, you know, intensity of buying, where parents kind of just trying to fill their kids' time with something that's that's going to be useful to them, as they started um, getting more breathing room and wanted to plan ahead, they wanted to fill some time slots with things they knew that would be valuable for their kids and the kids would enjoy. And so we have a subscription class type, which is an ongoing class, um, is what we call it. And you know, kids can join anytime, and they can just meet on a weekly basis for as long as the topic interests them. And at the start of the pandemic. That represented 10% of our sales, and um, now it's above 50%. So as well as our business overall growing tremendously during that period, you know, the subscription class type in particular uh, grows as a percentage. It's amazing. So I'd also love to talk about like what like the vision for OutSchool. What can we expect in the next five, 10 years? And as things open up or begin to open up in the next few months or, or hopefully open up in the next few months. What do you see where, where OutSchool fits into a child's day moving forward as things, quote unquote, get back to normal? Yeah, you know, our vision for OutSchool is to be a global community of learning um, that can reach hundreds of millions of learners worldwide and that supplements local schooling. So fills in all the gaps, whether it's subjects that just aren't offered in school or um, maybe a kid needs a subject taught in a different way and for whatever reason, local school isn't meeting their needs. You know, one thing about that vision and uh, schools opening up is they're not uh, mutually exclusive. We're not trying to replace school here. We believe in a future of education that's hybrid where kids are spending a lot of their time learning in person and then a lot of their time learning online in various ways and also hybrid from the point of view of kids should be spending you know, time on core subjects. Um, so uh, they have a common base of knowledge, but they should also be spending more time on interest-based learning and subjects outside of the normal curriculum, because that's the way that they acquire a love of learning and really truly differentiated skills based on the different subjects that they can learn. So, you know, with that vision, I don't see 
local schooling or schools opening up as kind of, you know, competition. Well, our goal is to supplement those schools and in fact, work with them. So the majority of our business is direct to consumer, but we've started partnering with schools where schools are actually offering out school classes to their communities as enrichment programs. And so in the future, I envisage, you know, out school classes to be embedded as electives um, within the school day. And that for us to have a, a large and thriving consumer business, but also have a large business working with schools. So I definitely imagine that, you know, like with restaurants, bars, and all these other in-person activities which we've been restricted, there's going to be some months where everyone's just wanting to, you know, go outside and not be at their computer. And, you know, I, I'm the same. I'm sure, and, you know, that's totally natural. But I, I, I think, you know, we're going to set, it's not like suddenly everything's going to open up and people are going to, you know, stop being on social media or uh, stop uh, using meal delivery. There'll be a period of adjustments and then we'll settle back into, you know, a hybrid world where people are making use of, you know, in-person facilities and online facilities, depending on what it is they're trying to achieve and what their personal preferences are. That's fascinating. Also, just thinking about out school being more part of the actual curriculum as well for the school. That's really smart. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I mean, on a personal level, you know, when I was a kid, one of the first books I really got into, and I know many kids, this is true many kids, was Lord of the Rings. And I look back on that now and I, I see the fellowship as like a startup. You know, you have this, uh, you know, this group of diverse people drawn together by this, you know, big, hairy, difficult mission and, you know, going through various trials and tribulations. You know, a startup is a, a little bit less a battle against evil. It's a little bit more, less of a kind of a, a fight against something and more a draw towards a future that you want. But there's nevertheless a lot of similarities and, you know, the camaraderie and the um, interaction of the Fellowship of the Ring always uh, inspire me from an early age. I've always been into science fiction. So there's many science fiction books that inspire me. Um, I think uh, yeah, the three-body problem is just like such an interesting reflection on humanity's place in the universe. I'd recommend that. To... On the professional side, um, a couple of books that I read a long time ago, but have influenced me a lot um, as an entrepreneur, Innovator's Dilemma, by Clayton Christensen and, you know, Crossing the Chasm, that concept. You know, Innovator's Dilemma, just to really, really crystallize for me, you know, why is it that startups structurally can succeed? And <laughs> why is it that large institutions struggle? And, you know, I, I see that in the education system. And, you know, why is it that despite everyone's best efforts and energies and, and all of your know, hearts being in the right place in terms of you know, administrators and teachers, why is it that the school system, you know, has struggled to keep up with, you know, what parents want? And it's this really unfortunate statistic that there's been polls done since the 70s asking parents, um, I think it's Gallup polls, asking parents, you know, how much trust you have in your local school and levels gone down from 70% to 20%. I don't think it's because schools got worse at all. I think schools have made incredible changes and got better in many ways. It's just that the world is changing so fast. And I think, you know, some of the ideas inside the innovators dilemma help explain why it is that that systems like that um, struggle to change. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? I've got to go, I've received so much great advice, but I've got to go back to a piece of advice my father gave me which has really stuck with me. And I think he was just trying to get me to stop bugging him. 
know, always stop procrastinating over some homework, but I, I thought it was profound and, and is really fundamental to learning. That is, you know, you tell me, hey, just write the first sentence. Write the first sentence. You can always, you can always change it later. And, you know, this is because I was stuck, because I was trying to write an essay and you know, I just couldn't seem to get started. And I think that was really powerful advice because, you know, getting started is key to learning by doing. And a lot of the time, what holds you back in learning something is this kind of this fear or this, you know, the stakes seem too high because, you know, if you write it down, that first sentence you get it wrong, then, you know, uh, that, that kind of holds you back. So just like do something, anything, <laughs> write down the first sentence. That's really what we did with OutSchool. You know, we came to this wanting to learn about education through the early adopter community of secular homeschoolers and through that really craft a product and vision. And I see that as kind of you know, writing the first sentence. I'm currently reading Stephen King's book on writing where it talks about his writing process. And he said, what can be really, really tough or hard to do is that first draft. But don't worry, because the point of the second draft is to have it look nothing like the first draft. So you've nothing to lose when you actually, similar to your, you know, just write the first sentence, you can always change it. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice, I guess besides that, because that's a really good piece of advice, but maybe what's another piece of advice that you have for founders who are currently building? I think, you know, one thing that has been so different between my experience with OutSchool and my first startup is just how personally connected I feel to what I'm doing. I would urge founders to, you know, not just look at the market, talk to customers, look at the data and, you know, read the news. So there's all good things to do to understand market trends because you're, you're trying to create something that's going to be a, a great business or you know, be really impactful. But I think it's just as important to look inside of you and really explore why this domain? Why this idea? What is drawing me to it? And kind of listen to yourself. Listen, because that's coming from somewhere. And it might be coming from a past experience, from your childhood, or just who you are. And if you can draw a connection between that and what it is you're building, then I think you're going to have like so much better time doing it. You're going to enjoy yourself more. And I, I think, you know, I've got no data to back this up. I think more of a chance of success both a better journey and uh, and better results. And so I, I'd urge founders not to build just for the sake of building, not to build for the sake of external validation or external success, but you know, really build, discover what really makes you passionate and build for yourself. It's a great piece of advice because also at the same time, this is something that you know you might be doing for the next 10 years. So you certainly want to enjoy yourself um, at work rather than not enjoy yourself. Amir, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And there you have it. It was simply terrific chatting with Amir. Feel free to follow him on Twitter at Amir Nathu. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>